Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Now let's go to the book of Ezra. Uh, we'll just review a little bit, um, kind of the big picture of what we're looking at here. So, I overheard Jim when I was walking by back there. Why, why is this not include Nehemiah as well? That's a great question, Jim. Uh, actually, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one book, and so it seems fitting to keep them together. Uh, we just don't have time. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> this is the tricky part. So. Chronologically, Esther fits in the middle of Ezra. Um, so, this <coughs> chart kind of helps us see where we're at in the timeline of biblical history. So, all the way on this side, we have creation, and then some of the big events we think of through history, and then all the way on the other side, we have the cross. So, it doesn't show any of the New Testament stuff other than Jesus coming and dying on the cross. Um, as kind of bookend here. So we are studying this area right here, restoration. So the final period when God is uh, still speaking to his people, Israel, before Jesus comes. So these are the last uh, records and prophets that we have until God is silent towards his people for 400 years um, of new prophecy. So you can notice here, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are listed together, and then Malachi will actually be the last book that's written. But they're all pretty close. And then something we'll see as we study next week, but we're going to prepare for it maybe over the next week, uh, is that Haggai and Zechariah land in the middle of the book of Ezra. It's when they show up and prophesy to the nation of Israel. So on a big picture scale of where we're at in the Bible's timeline, it's helpful because the book of Ezra is listed uh, with kind of the historical books. So it comes after Kings and Chronicles and stuff like that. And then you have you know, Job and Psalms and Proverbs and all the prophets. And really this is happening chronologically near the end of the Old Testament. And uh, so Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah are closer to being in the right spot uh, chronologically, but they're not grouped chronologically. When they split into the northern and southern kingdoms. Yeah. So are the, are the ones in the Babylon, Babylonian captivity, mm-hmm. are they strictly Judah or are they both? And then when they come back to rebuild, are they strictly, is it strictly Judah or is it both? My understanding is only Judah, okay. at least the majority. Um, so, yeah, the, the kingdom split and they both have their own kings. And then the line that we track to Jesus is the line through Judah. So he's the lion from the tribe of Judah, is one of his names. And so uh, this is what is restored here, this line. And then eventually Jesus is born from that line. Are the Jews today really Judah, or are they both? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I think they're mostly Judah, but I don't know. Does anyone 
Well, Scripture hasn't brought them back together and won't until the end of the tribulation. Right. So, so I think fully So I would think, based on what's not in the Bible, that they are being ministered to by God in two separate arenas. Yeah. So the so the northern kingdom or northern tribe is still being kind of assimilated in. Well, nations. I'm just saying that because it doesn't say that anything about them are coming together. Right. That's good. Any other questions with that? It's a good thought. And that's the group we follow back from uh, where that Persia, from Persia to Jerusalem is the, the Judah line. And then we're kind of zooming in here. So this shows us um, the timeline of the books we're studying. So, the, you know, Judah went into the seven-year captivity. They were taken captive by uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then at some point, um, I don't remember the exact timeline here, uh, Babylon falls and uh, they're taken over by Persia. And so under Persia's reign is when they start returning. We said that last week with Cyrus. And then they're being led back by Zerubbabel, who in chapter 1 is called uh, Sheshbazar. It's his Persian name. His uh, Jewish name is Zerubbabel, and he's a descendant of Jesus. Or uh, he's one of the ancestors of Jesus. He's a descendant of David. So if you look at Matthew chapter 1, Zerubbabel is mentioned as one of Jesus' ancestors. And then Joshua, or sometimes referred to as Jeshua, is a high priest. And so as we look at this timeline, uh, we see that they, they come back and they start, um, they start rebuilding the temple. And then there's going to be a gap in here where they stop building, which is what happens next week. And that's when Haggai and Zechariah are in. We love it when clickers work. And then Ezra, the person, actually doesn't show up until chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So that's kind of the, the outline of the book. And then it flows right into Nehemiah. And then if you look up there, you notice that the events of Esther happen in between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. So we'll actually stop in Ezra 7 and go to Esther to just study it chronologically, because that doesn't happen very often. And then we'll jump back into Ezra. So that's kind of the big picture. Um, class outline, so that's kind of what we just mentioned here, is we're following the first uh, exile expedition back to Jerusalem in these first six chapters. And then we're going to go back to Persia and study Esther, where she saves all the Jewish people. Because Haman is the lead prince under Ahasuerus. And Haman convinces Ahasuerus to have all the Jews killed in the whole Persian Empire. And so it would be these Jews in Jerusalem, too, that would be put to death. And so Esther, God uses Esther to save them from genocide. And then we'll jump back to Ezra 7 and follow them, follow Ezra as he leads a group back as well. Um, so in your notes there, kind of the background of the book of Ezra. So the thing we have to understand about these people is that they're a nation. They're a nation who's been taken captive and led away to a foreign land, and they're going back to their homeland and trying to establish 
themselves as a nation again. They're trying to have a government. So what is the uh, Jewish government? It is a theocracy. So God is their king, and they're supposed to act as citizens under his kingship. And so uh, in their timeline, they eventually have a king who represents God to them, whose job is to, to know the will of God and to lead the people to do that. They have high priests who lead them uh, spiritually, but also who are there to atone when they sin against the king. And so when we think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, there is an element there, we talked about this last week, of forgiveness. When you read Leviticus, they kill the animal, the blood is shed, and it says you will be forgiven. And so it's similar to what we might think about with, uh, you know, if we get a speeding ticket, we have to go and pay our fine. It's a governmental system, and it's meant to call these people to say, I can never kill enough animals to atone for my sin. I just sin too much, and they to cry out to God for mercy, and like Abraham, to believe that God will save them and to have a credit to them as righteousness. So people have always been saved by grace through faith and God's promises, and not through the Jewish sacrificial system. So the point was never to say, okay, I killed you know, 5,000 animals, I'm good now. Uh, that was meant to drive them to the knees and say, God, I can't do enough, please save me. So we talked about last week. Um, I have a question. Yeah. You said grace by faith. Uh, mm -hmm. We're in a grace dispensation now. Was he, you know, as I read about Abraham, he his righteousness was based on faith. Mm -hmm. Now we are assuming that's because of God's grace. It doesn't say that. I don't think it says that. Right, right. No, I'm I'm reading into that Abraham never could have been good enough to deserve God's grace, and so it had to be. Okay. By the grace of God. Well, I mean, faith is used a lot more in the Old Testament than grace is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? And so I was just, I was just, I, I struggled with that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, I think if we just think about the inherent nature of a human, that we can never be good enough oh, or have enough faith, right, um, to be saved. Um, it has to be God's working despite what we are and what we deserve. So that's kind of the definition that I've used for grace, I guess. Perfect. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, as we think through what the nation is, their desire is to go back and not start a club, not you know go on vacation in Israel and tour all the sites of the rubble that's been destroyed. Their desire is to be the kingdom again, to be Israel. They uh, know that God promised after the seven years of activity to bring them back and to bless them and to set them up as a nation. So those are our links here. The Israelites desire a restoration of the theocratic kingdom. So they desire that God would be their God, He would be their king, and that they would be his, and uh, that they would follow His law and keep the Mosaic covenant and be His people. So there's kind of three main things that these people need in order to be Israel again, to be the kingdom. They need a Davidic king, they need a priesthood um, and a temple, and they need to keep the Mosaic covenant, they need the Mosaic law. So they have all three of those things. Zerubbabel is a descendant of uh, King David, 
Uh, Jeshua is high priest, a descendant of Aaron, and they have the Old Testament law. And they strive to keep the covenant as we'll read today. They start doing the festivals again and the sacrificial system as they should, as uh, the kingdom, as God has instructed them in the law. And then the last point there, uh, you can see the references where these are taken from. Again, this isn't until we get to Ezra at the second half of the book. But he just has such great faith in God as he brings a group back that he says over and over again, the good hand of our God is upon us. And he just trusts God's work to do what he's promised and steps out in faith and does um, what God said uh, he would do through them. And so we won't get into the details of that promise until we get to chapter 7. It'll be fun when we get there. You know it will It's going to be great. Okay. Uh, today we're going to study uh, chapter 2, verse 68, through the end of chapter 3. So you can turn there in your Bibles if you're not already there. And then we need to invest in some new clickers. Yeah, there we go. So the theme of this section is that God leads the remnant back to show his covenant faithfulness. So last week we studied how Cyrus decided to send the people back. He said, go, here's my decree. Um, you can go under my kingship and set up your own government. And here's all your articles of the temple. Go ahead and head back. That would be great. And it's just kind of, you know, kind of bizarre that like all of a sudden this king decides to send them back. Of course, we know that God, as it remarks in the text, that God moves in the heart of the king to bring him back and to have them go uh, there. And then it lists all the people going back. And so if you think about what this is, uh, if you think about expeditions like we've had in modern day, it's, you know, those people are famous. You know, think about Lewis and Clark and they had Zachary with them. You know, those are common household names because they're heroes. They went and did something scary to make progress for other people as well. And so you can think of other ones too. But here go all of these people, and their names are listed here, to go back and have the kingdom restored to them that God has promised to them. And so it goes down and it mentions a lot of their names, and then it gets down to uh, the numbering of them. And that's where we stopped in verse 67 last week. Before we jump into verse 68... Kind of a jump in time in the text. I have a bouncy ball here. It's kind of fun. And if you're under the age of like 10, this is like one of the most sacred objects on earth. Right? <laughs> so imagine I have like uh, three junior boys here and I toss this in between them. What's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to go after each other, right? They're going to go crazy. And what happens when one of them gets it? What's he going to say? It's mine. I had it first. You can't have a bouncy ball, right? We've heard this. We've probably said it. We have the same flesh as well. Um, but yeah, kids, kids grab onto things and they won't give them up. And it's rightfully theirs. And so I want you to kind of picture this. Uh, this is kind of who we are in our hearts. With people that, that see something we want, we grab it, and we hold on to it. And what we're going to see in this text is this people 
as they go into the land, they come in like this. So God has just brought them out of captivity, given them tons of riches, and they're back in the land. And the people come in, and they're, they're very generous. They, they come into the land open-handed, and they're afraid, but they're, they're willing to trust God and kind of step forward with that. But as we'll see, as Haggai addresses, that it doesn't last forever. <laughs> so within a couple years, the people have gone like this. They've grabbed back on to the things that are God's. Instead of stewarding them, being generous and giving them out and accomplishing what God's promised to do, they grab back onto it. And that's where Haggai says, stop it. <laughs> Those things are God's. And so you should use them however he wants you to use them. And something that's helpful with this that I thought through with my own sons is that when we grab onto something, it's we're no longer recognizing who God is and what belongs to him. Actually, now enslaved ourselves to this ball. And you've seen it in child. They'll grab it and they begin to serve the ball. The ball has control of them. And they, they don't realize it. They think that the ball is theirs. But really, the ball is kind of holding them and saying, Serve me. Um, and so when we, when we close our hands on things, it's actually kind of a scary thing. We're enslaving ourselves to the service. Of that thing, instead of recognizing this is God's, if He wants to take it away, He can. If He wants me to give it away, I will. Uh, if He wants me to save it, I can do that. And uh, it kind of brings a new perspective when we recognize that everything is God's, and we're just here to kind of move it around for Him <laughs> as He directs us. And we shouldn't grab onto anything too tightly, because um, that's what happens in. Sadly, we won't get into that fully today, the grabbing of it, but today we'll see their open-handedness and their faith in God as they trust His promises. So starting in verse 68, um, it discusses what happens as soon as they get to Jerusalem. Um, so there's a, some sort of travel gap here. We're not sure how long it took them. It doesn't tell us that. But they have arrived in verse 68. So some of the heads of the Father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of the Lord to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minyas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the, sing some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So here they are, they're coming back to Israel. And as soon as they get back, they, they need to gather funds to finance the project that they came back to do, which is to build the temple. They need the temple to be a nation. Everybody, pull, pull your funds and let's get this temple built. So they're right on the task right away. And the two words that I just love um, in these couple verses is that they offered freely for the house of God. And then in the next verse, um, according to their ability. And so there's parables about this in the New Testament and things like that where it can be a lot to give uh, very little in percentage of your ability with whatever the full financial picture is of your life. The key is, is that it's all God's and we need to be ready for Him to do whatever He wants with it. So that doesn't mean that we go empty our savings account and put it all to a good cause. 
it means that we pray and we ask God to, to lead us to do the right thing with our money, with His money that we're stewarding, and to be ready to give it freely. And so, you know, it's kind of a gross picture of someone like, oh, I don't want to give, but I know I should, and so they do it. And that can be hard for us, but when we trust the Lord and that it's all His, and that He can do whatever He wants with it, and uh, in this case, they know that they're on a mission to build the temple together and to get things ticked off. Um, they're ready to give of those things. And imagine how hard that would be right after being in captivity for 70 years. Um, I don't know the exact conditions that they experienced in Babylon or Persia, but they probably weren't all super rich. And so now they finally have some money to their name, and they're being asked to, to give it. And uh, they do it uh, with a happy heart. They give it freely and uh, according to their own ability. So I think I have some blanks there. Yeah, so the remnant arrives in Israel and each gives according to his or her ability to finance construction. So it's kind of interesting through this whole text, uh, the lack of detail that's given. So here they kind of get the amounts that are that are donated, but as we get into uh, the altar and the feasts and the celebration and the foundation of the temple, there's not much detail given. If you go back and read when Solomon built the temple, the first temple that was destroyed, um, I think it's in First Kings. Sorry, yeah, Second Kings. First Kings five and six, I think it is. There's lots of details given. The, the exact measurements are laid out. So they do have some of those things because they have the Bible. Um, but I think they're focusing on something different. I think in this text, the divine author in Ezra, as he reports this, is focusing on the people. So notice as we read this next section how it describes the people functioning in relation to one another. They kind of move as one. They're a group. They have one mission together, and they're just trusting the Lord as they step forward um, all together. So it says in the seventh month here, in chapter 3, verse 1, we're not sure if that's seven months from when they left Persia, or seven months from when, since they arrived. But we know from the previous verse that uh, the people kind of dispersed in Israel to go back to their cities, but now they're all gathering again in Jerusalem to start their project. So, chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people, sorry, and the children of Israel were in the city. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set up the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. And so as we look at this, they... They come together as one man, and that's kind of an interesting way that they say that. They, 
It's used again in verse 9, talking about the priests, how they arise as one. And so I think the author is picturing for us the unity that all of these people have around uh, this task to rebuild the temple, because that's what God promised that he would do for them. Uh, and so they come together, and then Jeshua, the high priest, uh, stands up and starts building the altar. And this is significant. If you think about this people, they've been captive for 70 years. And during that whole time, Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed about 20 years after the first people were taken into captivity. And so it's been about 50 years since there's been a sacrifice to the God of Israel on this spot. So you've got to imagine the, the weight of this in the mind of Jeshua. Okay? Uh, he's never done this before. <laughs> and as you think about, uh, I think it's Leviticus 9, when some people take this low, you know, they don't, they don't have high regard for sacrifices to God. And God wipes them out. He kills them. And so here comes Joshua, kind of figuring all this out. And here he is building the altar and offering the first sacrifice that's been done on this site in 50 years. And so it says that they do it as it is written in the Law of Moses, the man of God, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. And so even as they... They know that this is God's promise for them to do this, and they're trusting Him, and they're doing it together. There's still this fear as they start this. So here's some summary points for us. The remnant gathers to start being a nation again, and the people gather to build the altar. So it is hard for us to kind of feel the, the weight and the gravity of what they would have been experiencing because we just don't have the same experience as them. So it would be similar to like, you know, the United States is in Israel and, uh, you know, we're not the chosen nation of God. But imagine if we were taken captive to another country and then you come back home. Imagine that feeling of like, I'm finally home. And this is crazy. Like, that would just be weird to us. Um, we, we don't really have anything that can relate to that feeling that they experienced. Um, there's people around the world who experience that every day as they're uh, removed from their homes and things like that. But we, it's a far thought from what we experience. So here they are. They build the altar. So here's a picture of a representation of what Solomon's temple would look like. So... We're not sure how closely, at least in this text, they're following the plans of Solomon's temple. But if you can see up on the upper right corner, there's a compass pointing north. So this would have been just, the altar would have been just east of the temple. Okay. So why do you think they would have started with the altar instead of starting with something else? Sacrifice. Sacrifices, exactly. So it's especially significant with what's coming up because they're going to recognize uh, some of the feasts that they're commanded as a nation to recognize, which they haven't recognized together in at least 50 years, um, 70 
at least 70 years uh, of them being faithful to it. And so here they are, they're, they're building uh, this altar, and this is the altar where they would have sacrificed normally. So this is um, where the priests would have made sacrifices on an almost daily basis. When you go inside the temple here, um, up here is the Holy of Holies. So the high priest, one man, was only allowed in there once, uh, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. He was to go in and sacrifice on uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you recall, they were to wash uh, before they went in. There's lots of regulations on how to do that. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, you have that uh, picture of that guy's name. Is it another Zechariah? It goes in there and goes in mute. Yeah. yeah. Zechariah, yeah. He goes in there and um, they have a rope tied to him so that they can pull him out if he dies because he's not done the correct sacrifices and purification. So this was a big deal. And as we uh, see here, they start by uh, making sacrifices for the nation because they recognize that the reason that they were taken into captivity is because they stopped faithfully being God's people. They stopped uh, giving sacrifices um, and atoning for their sins as a nation. So that's the first thing they do. And as they... Like, what is the, what yeah. is the art at this point? Yeah. Um, I'm not positive. They may be lost already at this point. To so we have to wait for yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Indiana Jones. Is the, that's where it is. It's in Hollywood. Yeah, I I don't know if anyone else remembers the timeline of where the Ark is at. I think it's kind of lost. It's uh, lost. I thought it was lost during the at this yeah, point. If I, like it got lost during the that one. Right. I don't I don't think it was ever recovered. So, yeah, good question. Because it was lost. You know, it had been lost several times before, and then restored. So that is part of this, I think. Because <clears throat> at the end of our text, we'll see the people weeping. And part of it is, they still don't have a temple built. They still don't have an armor. They're still like, we're trying this, but we're missing things that are uh, key to this all working. So yeah, as we get to, uh, they offer sacrifices in three, and then we get to verse four, and they have the Feast of Tabernacles. Does anyone remember which one the Feast of Tabernacles is? What's that? Isn't that the tab, uh, Festival of the Booths? Yeah. yeah, sometimes called Festival of the Booths. Good. So it was a remembrance of God saving the people out of Egypt, out of their captivity in Egypt, and it's actually very fitting that this is first thing to celebrate together uh, coming out of the captivity of Babylon and Persia, as it's a celebration of God saving his people out of captivity. Uh, so, a couple things that led up to this. They would first have, I can't remember if it mentioned it here, I don't think it does, the Feast of Trumpets that would occur on the first day of the seventh month. And they have a trumpet go and what it signified, they, they take the day off and they would rest. It was like a Sabbath day. And 
it would signify a 10-day period where the nation was to nationally repent of their sins and to kind of get right before the Lord um, before the Day of Atonement. So that, that's already passed. And so here they are. They probably already celebrated that. And then they have the Day of Atonement. And then seven days later, I think it is, I'm sure I get that right. I think it's seven days later they have the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's where they spend a week individually uh, living in a booth. It was like a hut. They, they take branches and everyone would kind of go out and live in this hut to remember uh, God's covenant faithfulness to them to uh, bring the people of Abraham out of Egypt and then to make them his chosen nation. And so this was significant for them. This is their... They're like main festivals that they're able to celebrate again in Jerusalem. Uh, so we read about it here. It says, They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. So it's going to note here that they're, they're very following it to the, you know, every dot and tittle or you know, whatever you want to say. They're doing exactly what it says uh, to the best of their ability. Afterwards, they offer the burnt offering, the regular burnt offering, and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord, verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. And so here they are, they still don't have the temple, but they have the altar now, and they're offering sacrifices and following the feast. And verse 7. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the, to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And so they, they built the altar, and now they're kind of putting in their order to get the materials to build the temple. And so that's what they're doing there, they're paying laborers and to get the logs they need to do that. And what's really interesting is they kind of follow a historical pattern here. History repeats itself. So if you think back to Abraham, the father of this nation, the first thing he did when he got to the Promised Land was to make an altar and make sacrifices to God. And then Solomon, when he built uh, his temple, he did the same thing. He had logs come down from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa. And so you almost wonder if these people, they're reading the law and the history of the kings, and they're just trying to, like, they're like, we don't know what we're doing, so let's just do what <laughs> Abraham and Solomon did, and that's got to be good enough. And so it's fun uh, to, to watch them seek to honor the Lord here. So I think what happens now is there's a gap in time and while they wait for the materials to arrive. So between verse 7 and verse 8, we have about a year transpired where I think they're waiting for the materials to arrive. I should probably catch up with the Blanchard. They built the altar, they started sacrificing. And so now, finally, a year later, they're going to start building the temple. So this is in the year 536 BC. The first uh, 
deportation of Israelites from Jerusalem was in 605 BC. So it's almost exactly 70 years from when the first captives were removed that now they're laying the foundation of the temple. And so God has perfectly kept his promise to his people that after 70 years they'll be brought back to the land. So let's read about it in verse 8. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, so this is the Davidic king and the high priest, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And so this is just kind of a summary verse. And it's significant because it says they began. <laughs> they started uh, the work on the temple, and they start with the foundation, of course. <clears throat> so they get going here, and right away, um, we're assuming Zerubbabel, we don't know who does it, the uh, high priest and the other priests are appointed in the next section to kind of lead and oversee the work. So we'll see that in the next few verses here. So in these verses we see that the remnant completes the foundation of the temple and renews the covenant with them. Verse 9, then Jeshua, so this is the high priest, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one. So here all the priests are working together to oversee the work. So it says to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, the symbols, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So the first two sections we see there is that uh, Priests oversaw the work as one, and a priest led the nation in their covenant renewal of the completion of the foundation of the temple. So first, I made this comment earlier uh, that the details of this text is not, it doesn't zoom in on the details of the project as is common in biblical accounts. Think about the park, the temple, you know, any structure that God has commanded his people to make, and there's very detailed instruction of how things are to be done. So instead, the author zooms in on the attitude of the people, that they're working as one unit, they're giving freely, they're, um, uh, they're submitting to high priests as they lead in the working, and it's just a cool picture of all these people coming to this with open hands, ready to follow the Lord as he directs them through his promises. So in that first part we see that they're leading that, uh, the priests are, and then they um, have this ceremony once they finish the foundation of the temple. 
And so I think it's kind of a dedication to the Lord that they're saying, you know, this temple is for the Lord, and they do it according to the ordinance of David, uh, king of Israel. I think that's an interesting way to say it, because David's been dead for 430 years at this point, and they haven't referred to Zerubbabel as the king, but they refer to David as the king of Israel. So I'm not fully sure why that is. Um, he was the greatest king of Israel, historically. He was just a man. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that they would say that. And uh, that he retains that uh, royalty of king of Israel as the king after God's own heart. So you can log that away for later and ponder it as you go to bed. It is significant what they they sing responsibly as they praise and give thanks to the Lord. So they say, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. And that word mercy is the Jewish word has said, which is the kind of key covenantal uh, faithfulness and loyalty of God's love towards his people. So this is a covenantal statement that they're making here, where they're saying, uh, God has kept his promises, and we believe that he is good, and he is faithful towards his people, and he will be forever. And that gets complicated because we know that the Mosaic Covenant is a two-way covenant. So if the Israelites turn away from God, he curses them, and if they follow him, he blesses them. And so uh, right now they're following him, and he's blessing them, but as we'll read about in Haggai, they turn away. And they don't receive, uh, it's really fascinating how Haggai says it. He doesn't say that you have received the curses of the Lord, but he just talks about how they, they don't feel satisfied, uh, their crops aren't growing well, uh, there's not a lot of rain. <laughs> He's just kind of like pointing things out like, I don't think you're receiving the blessing of the Lord right now, and uh, you should probably turn back to him. And then at the end, he lists all those things, and then God says, but I will bless you. It's kind of this, I'm going to do it anyways, because I promise to do it uh, to you specifically as a bring you out of captivity. And you got to remember that's after 16 years of them uh, just kind of hanging out and not building the temple. And so God was very patient with them again. And I think here that... They, this happened in Israel's history a lot, where they called to mind God's covenantal love, His faithful love, as a way to encourage themselves, as a way to show that they're trusting the Lord. And it's kind of a covenant renewal ceremony. So you can think about it like a renewing of wedding vows type thing. It's more significant than that. Um, we don't do anything quite the same um, as. You know, we're not Israel, so as a church, we don't exactly have a covenant renewal time. But our Sunday morning gatherings are similar, where we remember God's faithful love towards us in dying on the cross for our sins and rising again for our sins. And that's meant to be a weekly renewal where we remember God's love towards us. And so we do have something similar. Uh, it's not quite the same because our covenant with him isn't conditional on our obedience. He gives that to us in Christ. 
Is that similar to our communion time? Yeah. No, I think it's, uh, yeah, that's a similar thing where we remember the sacrifice exactly then. <clears throat> you said the word mercy is a sin? Yes. And we today have a city of Jews? Hmm. I don't know if that's the same, the same uh, Hebrew word. Hasidic Jews? Is that the same word as the said? Does anybody know that? Yeah, it's, it have the long curls and the right. Are they the more like traditional super conservative? Because I think there's Orthodox Jews, right? So yeah, that's I can't use that word. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. If they uh, hold more tightly to the traditions or whatever. All right, so they, they do this all together, and then at the end of verse 11, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And so there's great joy here as, as they uh, have this time together here, finally having the temple foundation back down, getting started. You know, there was that fear a year ago, but now things are going well, and uh, it looks really good. Something interesting happens in the next few verses. Let's look at 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far off. So this would have had to be like a bizarre sound. There's people shouting for joy, and there's people weeping very loudly. And so it's like this mixture of joy and sadness. So I think they all kind of start out with joy in the verses above. And then the people who had seen the previous temple, I think they're sad a little bit for a couple reasons. Um, they're sad because they realize that this is never going to be as great as Solomon's temple. So Haggai talks about that in chapter 2. He asks them, he's like, how many of you were there to see the original temple? Is, does this temple compare to the one that I had before? And the obvious answer is no. And so I think there's some level of disappointment as they see uh, that this is not going to be as significant as the previous temple. And I think part of the other thing is that they still, uh, like we said earlier, they don't have, um, I wrote this to somewhere, they still don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they still don't have the glory of God dwelling among them in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And uh, the temple isn't built either, and so it's just the foundation. And so I think there's several things that some of the older people who had seen the previous temple are still like, We've got a long way to go, and this still isn't going to be as good as it was. And they're dealing with some disappointment with that. Uh, so yeah, the uh, summary of that is some wept in sadness and some rejoice, and all did it loudly. <laughs> they were heard afar off, and there was weeping and crying happening there. And interestingly enough, this kind of ends the happy period of this first project for a while. So what we'll study next week is that some people come 
and uh, asked to help build it, and then there's a question of if they're permitted to build it and all this stuff, and they stop working on the temple. And 16 years go by, which is a long time. <laughs> what happened? Um, you know, you think about, like, if you get someone a job, and it's like a, this isn't a simple job, but you give someone a simple job, and you leave for a while, and they should be working on it, and you come back, and they're still not done, and they haven't even, like, started on it, really. And that would be pretty disappointing. What happened? Where did this all go stop? You know? Uh, <laughs> so, God, again, shows great patience and uh, kindness towards his people. But we'll look at verses, or sorry, chapters four through six next week. Does anyone have any questions on what we study tonight before we look at the application? Why did it take him 16 years? That is a great question. Oh, you um, said James. What was it, No, 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 it's good. What was um, the question? Why did it take him 16 years? What happened? We don't fully know other than However it worked out, they all decided that they should stop. And so they do. And there's kind of this underlying tone in Haggai of, why do you have houses to live in and I don't have a house? Is what God is saying to them. And I think there's even a tone of, you're using the materials that I provided for the temple to build your houses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they've gone like this, they've grabbed on. So, we won't look at that in detail tonight. I think they, they stopped trusting the Lord, they stopped recognizing that all things are His, and they closed their hands on it, and it stopped everything for 16 years. Did they have the ark? The ark? No, I don't think they ever got the ark back as far as I know. Yeah, Dorothy. Did they build another ark? I don't think so. Not that I know. So. <laughs> what was her question? Did they build another ark? Well, the ark is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Right. So they. I don't so think as you, you mentioned, we're getting to the end of the Old Testament. Right. Which, and all of a sudden the ark's going to show up, but it's going to be in the form of Jesus. Yeah, that's what's so fun about the New Testament, is Jesus, the presence of God, returns to the temple, and how does he find it? Not good. No. And the presence of God hasn't been in the temple for hundreds of years. He comes back and finds it, and Robert, and he cleanses it. Here the people of Israel are. They finally, they, they think God's presence has been there for all these years, and he hasn't. They don't even recognize that he's not there. And here God's presence enters the temple, and they hate him. It's just very sad in the end. Okay, uh, so what? How does this help us? Obeying God is fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's no fun in life to just kind of hold on to everything. And end up worshiping the things you think are protecting us, uh, helping us, keeping us safe, uh, giving us joy. But instead, true fun is when we trust the Lord and obey Him and follow His way instead. 
And I think the people are kind of having fun there, you know, they're doing their, their normal things in hand, enjoying themselves. Okay, obeying God does not mean we will not face fearful tasks. So again, the people, as they set up the uh, altar again, they're afraid. There's, you know, they don't have any city walls, which don't come until Nehemiah. So, uh, they're kind of sitting ducks, and all they have is the promise of God to trust that He's going to protect them and keep them there. And they move on and doing the right thing for a while, uh, trusting the Lord. Uh, God's love endures forever. I just love that Hebrew word has said that God loves what He doesn't. Uh, turn away from us. God valued and highlighted the unity of the people in the, their carrying out of tasks. So he called them to do this thing, and I think the author highlights their unity, they're doing this as one man, that everyone's contributing, they're giving things to help, and uh, they're all there to worship the Lord for peace. You know, everyone's working together on this here in chapter 3. And then lastly, change is emotional. So that last scene we have is, you know, the older generation weeping because the glory days are past and it's not going to be what it once was. And the younger generation is just excited to be there. You know, they've never been there before. And they, they, they've heard it from these same people probably. And now they're finally there. And so they're excited to be there. Um, but both, both are hard. Both are hard back in captivity, and uh, it's especially hard for the older folks who saw before because they know how much less it is than what they were expecting and what they knew before. And then God neither condemns those who uh, miss the old nor those who celebrate the new. And so I think that's important because it's not wrong to not like change. Um, it's not wrong to even be disappointed somewhat when things aren't exactly what they used to be like. But we still need to follow the Lord as one people and obey God and trust His promises to us. So I hope those are helpful. Um, I love how this people comes together and does all this as one. And it did great for two years. <laughs> so we'll, we'll study more next week. Um, real quick, if you go to the next uh, point in your outline there, we don't have time to study Haggai and Zechariah together. So if you want to read through it on your own, these are uh, there's four prophecies in Haggai. So you could read one of these a day, and I give the dates of when the prophecy happened um, in the timeline there as well. And so we won't read through it together, but you guys can read through it. It's just two chapters. It's not long. It on one shot if you want to. The questions are meant to prompt to help you understand the you know what the point is of what they're doing. Um, so a few things about Haggai, we don't know much about him. His name means feast. So maybe that's significant because they're celebrating feasts again. And, um, and so he's prophesying to these people, which we haven't studied yet, after they've been stagnant for 16 years. So we haven't studied that together yet. That doesn't happen until the end of chapter 4. But this will help next week make more sense if you study this throughout this next week. And then, yeah, it occurs between 
the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five as we're yeah, does anyone have any questions about anything? Study or policy might have to encourage or add to anything? Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.